Good morning. Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. First Austin is a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We are welcoming to all, no matter what uh, ethnic, racial, social class, origins, gender identification, sexual preference, political party, um, musical taste. So this is what we strive for. Sometimes we fall short, but we, we keep striving. We extend a special welcome to our visitors this morning. There's a visitor's card in front of you in the pew that you're welcome to fill out and put into the offering plate if you like. We're very glad you're here. If you have questions about our church, you are welcome to ask either me or the people who are at the visitor table after the service. If you've been coming here for a while and you feel that you would like to make this your spiritual home, we'd be delighted if you were to become a member. Becoming a member involves signing the book, before which you either have a meeting with me or you go to a class, and um, then you're a member. We come from a spiritual heritage, a religious heritage, that teaches that there's a spark of the divine in every human being. And so it is in that spirit that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Please join me in our chalice lighting words. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Now, let us worship together. Let us celebrate the sacred miracle of each other. Let us open our hearts, our souls, our lives to blessings both mysterious and transcendent. Now, let us be thankful for the healing power of love, the gift of fellowship, the renewal of faith. Now, let us accept with gratitude the traditions handed down to us from those who came before and open ourselves to begin anew for those who will follow. Now, let us worship together. When people ask you... Where do you go to church? And they say, why do you call it church? And why do you call it worship? And what are you all about? If some of the people there don't even believe in God, you can say, at First UU Austin, we gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. And may it be so. Okay, hi. Thank you all so much for coming up. I normally write stories for grown-ups, but I wrote this one for grown-ups and kids. And it's called The Couch of the Grand Cucalora. And it's called that because my mother used to say when I was little, she would go, come and help me, please. What do you think you are, the Grand Cucalorum? So he is in my head. The Grand Cucalorum was immensely pleased with his new couch, made of the softest lavender leather, creamy and smooth as butter, it sat softly glowing in an inner chamber of his private quarters. He looked forward to napping on it in the late afternoons, being cradled by its deep cushions, dreaming dreams that would help him govern the land. 
with majesty and decorum. Everyone in the land did as the Grand Cookalorum commanded. His staff scurried from room to room, filing his papers, serving him snacks, cleaning up his messes, and laughing at his jokes. His people crowded around the windows of the palace, trying to catch a glimpse of him. The only one in the palace who didn't do exactly as commanded was Henry, the Grand Cookalorum's large yellow cat. He was used to sleeping on the old couch, so he jumped right up onto the soft, new lavender leather, closed his eyes, and fell asleep. No, 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 Henry, shouted the Grand Cookalorum. You are not to sleep on this couch. You have your own spot in the corner of the rug, and you are to sleep there, and we will keep this new couch simply perfect with no yellow hair and no claw marks. The Grand Cookalorum explained the new rules to Henry several times. <laughs> but when he came into the inner chamber after a hard day at work, he would find Henry asleep on the new couch. Hearing the Grand Cookalorum come in, Henry would open one large yellow eye and look at the Grand Cookalorum, and then close his eyes again. The Grand Cookalorum got jumping mad, fist-clenching mad. When he jumped up and down, the decorations on his hat and the long toes of his shoes jiggled crazily. I am the Grand Cookalorum, he shouted. You have to do as I say, Henry. Henry's whiskers twitched as he slowly descended from the smooth lavender cushion. He decided to teach Henry a lesson. Setting mouse traps on the cushions, he said to himself, So, there, Henry will get a big pinch, and then he won't hop up there anymore, and I'll be able to keep my new couch simply perfect. While he was in the throne room at work, Henry swiped at the mouse traps with his paw, knocking them to the floor, where they snapped shut on empty air. After work, there Henry was, sleeping on the couch, mousetraps all over the floor, regarding the grand cookalorum with dreamy yellow eyes, full of the thoughts that came from being cradled in soft lavender leather. The grand cookalorum shrieked for a servant to come gather up the mousetraps, and then he ordered some big metal traps with sharp teeth. Trembling, the servant set the cruel traps on the soft leather couch, Henry watched with glowing eyes. That afternoon, he ran into the inner chamber, hoping the cat had seen the traps and stayed off the couch. One of the big traps lay sprung on the floor, and curled on the cushion where it had been lay Henry, purring in his sleep. The Grand Cookalorum snapped. He was the ruler of almost everything, and it was unbearable that he could not be the ruler over this one warm and purring cat. His angry arm swept down toward Henry, springing the second waiting trap, which sunk its teeth into the billowing cloth of the Grand Cookalorum's jacket, 
causing him to shriek like a big bird. Grabbing a candle from its stand, he set the couch on fire. (laughs) Now you will not be able to sleep on my beautiful, perfect couch, he yelled. That's right. As the flames devoured the lavender leather, servants rushed in with many pitchers of water and finally put out the fire. The couch was a smoldering ruin, stinking, sticky, and gray. The room filled up with shocked silence. The Grand Cocalorum's head cleared for a moment as if the fire had broken a spell. Oh, look, Henry, the Grand Cocalorum cried. Look what I've done. Our beautiful couch is in ruins. Henry, curled up on the floor, looked at him with a wise yellow gaze. I thought that since I was the ruler of quite a lot, I could rule over absolutely everything. What a silly mistake. Exhausted from all of his screaming and jumping around, he lay his head down on his pillowy, purring cat and closed his eyes. The Grand Cucalorum finally slept, dreaming dreams that would help him govern his kingdom with majesty and decorum. From William Ellery Channing, Beauty is an all-pervading presence. It unfolds to the numberless flowers of the spring. It waves in the branches of the trees and in the green blades of grass. It haunts the depths of the earth and the sea and gleams out in the hues of the shell and the precious stone. And not only these minute objects, but the oceans, the mountains, the clouds, the heavens, the stars, the rising and the setting sun, all overflow with beauty. The universe is its temple, and those people who are alive to it cannot lift their eyes without feeling themselves encompassed with it on every side. I love church history. I wish there were someone like Dominic Dunn who would write about it for Vanity Fair. You've got the same elements. You have intrigue and clash of personalities, and you've got integrity and ambition and vanity and the clear sense in one camp that what is clear and obvious to them is not obvious to the other camp, and In this camp, what's clear and obvious to them is not obvious to this camp, and they both think the other is misguided, dangerously. In 1803, the seed that starts the birth of American Unitarianism is sown with the death of the professor, the Hollis Professor of Divinity at Harvard University. Now, the Hollis Professor of Divinity trained every single minister who came out of Harvard, and there weren't any other places to study, really. So, you come out of Harvard, there weren't divinity schools at that time. If you wanted to do graduate work, you went to Germany, which many ministers did. Um, But this Professor of Divinity taught the ministers who were going to be guiding the people of New England in their spiritual journeys. 
he died, and the person who was obvious to replace him was not quite right for the position because where the Hollis professor who died had been a liberal Calvinist, the obvious person to replace him, Henry Ware, was just a liberal. <laughs> there was a, another Calvinist, Appleton, uh, Dr. Appleton, who was in line for the position, sort of, but um, there was going to be a big ruckus, no matter whom the president appointed, because at this point, Calvinism had been what was taught by most of the churches in New England for the past 200 years. Since the 1600s, the churches had been teaching Calvinism. And I'm going to remind you, in case you've forgotten, what Calvinism is. John Calvin was one of the reformers in the 1550s. He ruled over the town of Geneva, Switzerland. He's the father of all the Reformed churches, Presbyterian Church, Dutch Reformed. All the Calvinist churches are um, come from the writings of this man, who was just reviving the writings of a bishop of Ethiopia named St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. And he uh, wrote the things that John Calvin then rewrote and expanded upon, and the way that you remember what Calvinism teaches is by the acronym TULIP. And I'm going to tell you what TULIP stands for. T is the first doctrine. It's called the total depravity of human nature. <laughs> we human beings are born with original sin. What Augustine said was, the more passion your parents had at your conception, the more original sin you were born with. <laughs> So it's best to conceive children with as neutral an attitude as possible. <laughs> but original sin makes it easier for you to choose to do bad things than good things. You're just twisted from the start. And no amount of coddling or challenging at school or at home will take the crime and stupidity out of you. And mostly, we are inclined to choose, choose selfishly. And this is why uh, the hymn Amazing Grace has the word wretch, saved a wretch like me. And this is why some of the Calvinist preachers quote this uh, verse in Isaiah that says, even your righteousness is as filthy rags. And this is why um, in Reformed churches, you don't come up to the altar for communion. Communion comes to you uh, in little tiny cups of grape juice with little cubes of white bread because you cannot take a step toward God. God has to come to you. You're not even a partner in your own salvation. You're just a blob. You're a wretch. You're a worm. Get used to it. For me, this has been the most difficult of my former Presbyterian beliefs to get over because I find it a moderately cheerful and relaxing doctrine. Here's the reason. If you're a wretch, and if it's easier for you to choose to do bad things than good things, then you're doing pretty well 
If you're just a basically good person, you don't have to you don't have to build hospitals, you don't have to end slavery like the Unitarians tried to do, you don't have to end wars, you don't have to cure cancer, you just have to, you know, basically you're doing well if you don't knock over the gas station. <laughs> now I try to believe in the basic goodness of human beings, but I have to say it does set you up for more episodes of disappointment. Okay, so that's T, the total depravity of human nature. Now U of TULIP, the unconditional election of the saints. What does that mean? It means that God, to his glory, chooses some from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time, um, some are chosen to be saved. That's all Augustine said. But it doesn't take a big logical leap to say, so does that mean that some are chosen not to be saved? Well, yeah, but we don't talk about that. That's the famous double predestination some of y'all are, um, have, have wrestled with as children. Um, maybe it's just me. But um, predestination, by the way, is this Calvinist belief that your end is predestined. It's not like, oh, I stubbed my toe, that must have been predestined to happen. No, it's the end of things. There's free will in between. It just doesn't affect the end, which is either glory with God or not depending on how God chose. Now, when Augustine proposed this in the 400s, a church council was hastily convened to declare this doctrine anathema. Anathema is Greek for uh, something that's really yucky and not true. L, limited atonement. Okay, limited atonement. The atonement is uh, the belief that Jesus was, you know, died for your sins. Only if only some people were chosen, then Jesus only died for some people's sins. Limited atonement. He only died for the chosen ones. This is what the Baptists became Baptists fighting about. They said, no, that can't be true. He had to die for everybody. Atonement has to be for everybody. We don't believe that. So the Baptists are not Calvinists, or weren't at their beginning. Okay. I. It's for the irresistible grace of God. Can you, if God chooses you to be one of the saved, can you resist being saved? No, because God's grace is irresistible. God's will, God gets what God wants. Whatever God sets out to do happens. And so if God sets out to save you, then by God, you'll be, you'll be saved. And if you're not saved, if you don't get it, if it not, none of it makes sense to you, it's because God's not reaching out to you. Isn't that awful? Okay, so if you're not saved, if you don't get it, it's because God doesn't care whether you get it or not. The ones God cares about getting it, the chosen ones, get it. P is for the perseverance of the saints. That just means that once you're saved, you persevere in being saved. There's really nothing you can do to get unsaved. You can make lots of mistakes. You'll be forgiven. Once saved, always saved. But if you kind of get unsaved, it's probably because you weren't really saved in the beginning. C-I. <laughs> so that's traditional Calvinism, and that is what Unitarianism uh, was born in opposition to. 
in America. So, um, most of the churches in Massachusetts, where this controversy takes place I'm about to tell you about, most of the churches in Massachusetts were congregational churches where mostly Calvinism was taught. Some of the churches had ministers who had grown liberal. And so they did not teach Calvinism, but they didn't speak against Calvinism, really. They just confined their sermons to liberal things, like the love of God, uh, free will, um, doing justice, and the connection of all things. Not real meaty doctrine, like the tulip I've just described to you. Um, the society was pretty homogeneous because the Quakers were all in Pennsylvania and the Baptists were all in Rhode Island. And um, there were some Catholics, some Quakers, some Baptists in Massachusetts, but most were Congregational Calvinists because basically they had hung everybody else in the 1600s. I'm painting this with too broad a brush, I know. Uh, there was something called the standing order. And the standing order of things in the um, church realm was that there was a minister in every town, and the minister was paid with tax money from the town. And so um, that had been in effect since the 1600s. It had been protested as unjust by the aforementioned Catholics, Baptists, and Quakers. And um, so by 1805, when this controversy blew up, uh, really, the standing order was just that the minister was paid with tax money only if the church canvas didn't really make the budget. So the tax money would, would pick up the rest of it. And if you were Baptist or Quaker or Roman Catholic, you did not have to pay the tax. So it was pretty liberal by that time, really. And the ministers were getting along in Massachusetts. And getting along meant that if your church got into trouble, you would invite your neighbor church over to help you settle the trouble and if your minister um, wanted to, he or she, he, uh, and the other minister uh, in the other town would exchange pulpits. And so sometimes you'd have one minister, and sometimes you'd have that minister, the minister from the next town over, and vice versa. And it uh, it rested the ministers because they didn't have to write a new sermon that week, and it rested the people because they got to hear a different voice. So it was all good, all the time, um, back in those days. Enter the bad guy. There was a Calvinist named Jedediah Morse. And he moved to Massachusetts and was frankly horrified that the ministers were getting along so well with one another. He did not see how there couldn't be conflict between the liberals and the Calvinists. Because if you really dug down, if you really challenged one another on your doctrine, if you really found out the truth of what each man believed, then you would know that there was no way you could invite someone who was not preaching Orthodox doctrine into your pulpit to preach to your people because they might get like corrupted or something. So Jedediah Morse began stirring up trouble. What he said was there was one minister in, in uh, Boston, who had said he was a pure Calvinist and he wasn't going to pulpit exchange with anybody else who wasn't a pure Calvinist, but he just kind of kept in his head who that was and who that wasn't. But Jedediah Morse decided that there needed to be a signed statement of belief, that if you could not sign that you believed in the tulip Calvinist principles, then, by God, you were a Unitarian. <laughs> and that was that. 
to him. The English Unitarians didn't even believe Jesus was anything but a human being. Now, the American liberals were not quite ready to go that far. And so they said, no, 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 we're not Unitarians. Not like that guy Joseph Priestley, who was a scientist from London, whose church was destroyed, and he came over and began preaching Unitarianism in the United States. Well, he was a scientist, and so, you know, he was very brave and he, about saying, you know, Jesus was just a human being um, because he had discovered oxygen. And so, uh, you know, what can you say to him? <laughs> Nobody could say, what are you, stupid? No, never mind. <laughs> he didn't invent oxygen, he just discovered it. We had it before that. <laughs> but Dr. Morris, being troubled by the lack of controversy, um, made everybody start thinking about, you know, challenging one another as to whether they could um, sign this Calvinist statement of belief. All right. So, in 1803, two years before this, you know, the Hollis Professor of Divinity had died. And the president of Harvard was delaying, making a decision. Have any of y'all been part of academic politics? Because here's where it starts to get vicious. Because they are. Academic politics are, are vicious. And so, really, understandably, the poor man didn't want to make a choice. And he had been putting it off and putting it off. And finally, the Boston newspapers started calling him to task and saying, so we have this Hollis grant that you're supposed to be paying the Hollis Divinity Professor from, and you haven't paid a professor for two years. Where's that money, and where is it going? We want to know. Because newspapers did things like that in those days. <laughs> and his corporation, which was like the board that was helping him govern the uh, university, the corporation was beginning to mutter and push on him as well. So he exited the fray by dying. <laughs> A professor named Eliphalet Pearson took over as acting president, and he wanted to be president. So, um, in the writing of the people who knew him at the time, he was characterized as ultra-liberal before he became acting president and super-Calvinist after. So he was a flip-flopper. Did whatever was convenient. And he was disliked by the students as a bully, and he was known, it was written about him, this is my favorite thing, that he tended to alienate even those who agreed with him. Liflet Pearson and five other men made up the corporation. There was another staunch Calvinist, two liberals, and two moderates. So you got two Calvinists, two liberals, two moderates. The way they started the search process was each man wrote down two names of candidates. So the two Calvinists each wrote down two Calvinist names. The two liberals each wrote down two liberal names. And the moderates wrote down, what? One of each. The meetings were sour. They did not have a covenant of right relations. They say the meetings were the sourest 
due to the personality clash between Eliphalet Pearson and Dr. John Elliott, who was a liberal minister, and it was said that Pearson's personal attacks on Elliott were schoolboyish and mean. Those meetings must have been a joy. One of the people on the corporation uh, was Judge Oliver Wendell, and he was, um, his daughter was married to the conservative Calvinist Abel Holmes. And their son, Oliver Wendell Holmes, very famous. So anyway, finally Judge Wendell uh, proposed a compromise. How about making Appleton the Calvinist the professor and making Henry Ware, the liberal, the president? No, that everybody said. Henry Ware was not suited to the position of president. Okay, then how about the other way? Appleton for president, Ware for professor. Well... John Elliott didn't really like that because Appleton had a discordant and unpleasant voice. And as president, that would be a hindrance. You really don't want your president sounding like that. And leading worship like that. It's not good. So, it was a no from him. And it was also, but it would have passed except for Eliphalet Pearson, the Calvinist, voted against that um, making Appleton the Calvinist the president because he wanted to be president himself. See? So they appointed Henry Ware as the Hollis professor. But the appointment had to be okayed by the board of overseers, of whom there were 47. And at this meeting where they were going to vote, 45 of them showed up, which is unusual. And also who showed up was Jedediah Morse. And Jedediah Morse took this opportunity to cross-examine Henry Ware and to cross-examine those in the, in the corporation who were making this appointment. And he said, I've got you now because Hollis, who made this gift, wrote down stipulations about whom should be in this position and it should be a person, quote-unquote, a man of solid learning in divinity, of sound and orthodox principles. Orthodox said Jedediah Morse. See? Booyah! <laughs> but then the corporation, being educated people themselves, said, yes, but Hollis, you see, was a Baptist, and he had already left the orthodoxy that you're talking about, and so he would approve of Henry Ware, who is as orthodox as Hollis was, booyah yourself. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> Within a matter of weeks after the appointment of Henry Ware, Morse had written and published a pamphlet complaining about his election. And there, a couple months later, another liberal was chosen as president of Harvard University. So Harvard went completely to the liberals. And so the Calvinists... Uh, took their toys and went and founded Andover, and which is now turning out Calvinists even today, even though there are a couple of my colleagues, Unitarians, who came out of Andover as well. So uh, the standing order guys were not exchanging pulpits with the non-Calvinists, and um, the non-Calvinists were in a, a state where they kind of had to organize because they had to exchange pulpits with each other and help each other when their congregations got into trouble. And so a couple of the young ones 
decided, okay, we'll call ourselves Unitarians, and they formed the American Unitarian Association. And then a wonderful man whose picture's on the front of your bulletin named William Ellery Channing, who wrote the beautiful words that Chris read for you before the meditation. William Ellery Channing went to Baltimore to the, um, to the ordination service of Jared Sparks, and in the Unitarian Church in Baltimore, he preached a sermon called Unitarian Christianity. It's called the Baltimore Sermon now, if you want to Google it and read it. It's very long. But he took, and he took 20 other New England ministers with him. So the idea that this was a coming out sermon for Unitarianism was in the minds of everybody who was there. And what William Ellery Channing said was, you people are beloved of God. And would you... Any one of you burn one of your children for making mistakes? No. You would not burn one of your children. And if you did, you'd be put in jail. And so why do we teach that God would burn God's children for making mistakes? That is a horrendous doctrine. It's horrendous. And do you think you're a better parent than God? No. It doesn't make sense. And he said to have the crucifixion at the center of a faith... Um, is like having a gallows at the center of the universe. And he said the spirit of such a God would not be love. The spirit of that God who would win forgiveness with such terror and blood would just be terror. And that is not the God we worship. So in the Baltimore sermon, you have the basics of Unitarian belief that there, that there is a love in the universe and that there is not hell awaiting for those who do not believe or behave correctly. And my friends, I think as religious liberals, as Unitarian Universalists, we can claim that heritage with joy. And when it comes time for preaching the good news, we don't have to preach good news that has to start with, oh, by the way, you're a wretch, but you can get saved. No, the good news can be for us that there is a loving God as many Unitarians would raise their hands and say, at most, one. (laughs) And part of that love is that hell does not make any sense and that you can be a good person without fear of punishment, that we are good people simply because it works better to be good people. We enjoy our lives more as good people, and we do not need to be frightened into being ethical. So I say we should get mouthy and proclaim that good news at the coffee hour, at the cocktail hour, at the beauty bar, at work, at the water cooler, if we won't get fired. You can say, guess what? I go to the One God, No Hell church. (laughs) Unitarian, One God. Universalist, universal salvation. One God, no hell. It's good news. May we spread it around. May you go in peace. May you love. May you find love. May you serve. May you be served. May you be free in your mind, in your body, in your heart. May you grow ever more into who you are meant to be, so that everywhere you go, you will be a fountain of blessing to those who meet you. May it be so.
This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.